Welcome to everybody to this webinar version of the Yamalava and Pleska podcast, Logical and Much More with LegalAdviceMe.com. Now, my name's Tim Elliott. I'm here to chat with Ludmilla Yamalava. Now, Ludmilla, for anybody who doesn't know, the few people who don't know, is the founder. She's the managing partner of the firm HPL Yamalava and Pleska DMCC here in Dubai. And she's been actively managing and practicing in the UAE since I think 2008, Ludmilla. Am I right? Indeed. It has already been 12 years. There you go. So she has uh, some experience. She's US qualified, licensed by the State Bar of California. 18 years of legal experience. You wouldn't know it looking at her, six of which were spent in Silicon Valley. Now, Ludmilla was and still is a regular guest on Dubai, the radio station, talk station here in Dubai. And we first met there. We spent many afternoons answering legal questions never really had enough time to answer them all. So we continue to answer them in the form of a weekly podcast called Logical that we produce together. And now, because of COVID-19, it's time to take to Zoom and to be live on Facebook as well. Ludmilla, very nice to see you. Good to see you too, Tim. Although um, we are physically not together, it's um, great to have Zoom to allow us at least to have a visual of each other in real time. Exactly right. Now today, we're going to be talking about responsibilities in this special webinar, uh, specifically when it comes to personal and corporate liabilities in the UAE. And the backdrop, of course, is COVID-19. It's a backdrop of changes to the way we live, the way businesses operate, and the way we interact, as we are now, with one another. Now, if you're responsible for money, whether that's paying it out or paying it back, and that's most of us, this is a discussion for you. Now, if you've any questions, feel free to get in touch. We've nearly an hour to answer your questions. Now, Ludmilla, let's get straight to it. This is a time when, and we'll start with businesses, everybody's thinking, what can we do to get through? We're thinking about survival. It's been incredibly tough from an economic standpoint. We're all bracing for a lengthy contraction in the economy, even as things begin to open back up. Now, one thing is certain, bosses everywhere are thinking about the continued prosperity of their businesses. So let's start there with the corporate liability side of this discussion. Let's look at obligations that shareholders, directors, and managers have, both from a human aspect and, of course, from the legal aspect. Well, and um, as you rightfully pointed out, uh, the liabilities are many, uh, and um, uh, this comes from, I guess I can comment on it, based on experience of our clients and obviously friends and families uh, who are now struggling and, and finding you know, these challenging times um, and managing these challenging times, but also from my own personal experience and from my personal experience. So uh, I'm commenting in today's session, not only as a lawyer, but also as a business owner. Uh, and um, these same liabilities as a shareholder, as a manager, uh, and um, as, a, as an employer, um, all too close to me as well. And um, these are very, very difficult times, challenging times, because um, as um, we all know it, and we've heard this word too many times, these unprecedented times. and. Uh, how soon they will end is um, still a matter of crystal ball. Uh, in the meantime, the effects are very real, and in particular, in the first, uh, from the perspective of uh, corporate liabilities for companies, uh, the economy has slowed down, uh, obviously, and it's not just in the UAE, but all over the world. And as part of the slowing down, that means uh, most businesses, and obviously there are some businesses who are benefiting from this quite greatly, uh, but most other businesses are suffering tremendously, and that means a fall in in the client base and customer base and obviously with that there comes a direct correlation of drop in revenues now when revenues drop we all have much less disposable income and that comes from the perspective of a company uh, therefore a company cannot pay um, um, their employees as much or cannot retain as many employees because you don't have as much business uh, and even with existing employees um, it may struggle to to pay their salaries and pay liabilities to, to their employees or whom perhaps they're terminating or considering to terminate. And, uh, and then in the meantime, the company itself has loads of liabilities of its own. 
such as to the, to the landlord and to um, the various government uh, authorities uh, to whom it owes um, be it a VAT or licensing fees uh, or semi-government authorities, for example, utility providers uh, and all other contractors and um, in many cases also banks because a lot of companies, let's face it, have, um, have um, uh, current lines of credit with their banks uh, and uh, be it uh, through actual loans or mortgages and so when you have less money coming into an account, every aspect of your business is being affected. That's on the company side of things. And obviously on the personal side of things, those same employees who are now being either terminated or whose uh, companies are asking them to take pay cuts or uh, paid holidays or unpaid holidays uh, are also being affected uh, because ultimately that translates into much more limited disposable income. And yet our liabilities remain the same. We've got questions coming in, actually. So I'm, I'm going to jump around uh, Ludmilla a little bit here. And I want to come back to um, obligations in a moment, but in a slightly different way. But here's uh, JP. I'll just use that uh, acronym. But what happens with school fees at a time like this? And this is something that's very much in the news at the moment. Can schools really demand payment and object to admitting uh, pupils, children, for the following year, i.e. the next school year, um, or reports, if your account, if you like, with the school is in default? Well, let, let me start from a legal perspective. Remember, this is a legal webinar, but as um, as, um, as our professional style, we try to always provide advice that's also very practical and pragmatic. Uh, yes. So let me, um, that being said, I need to give some legal structure. So to be able to perhaps deal or address questions related to restructuring or managing obligations and liabilities during the time of COVID-19, uh, COVID it's important to set a framework, a legal framework in terms of what we're talking about. So anytime there's, uh, there is a discussion about, for example, paying to your landlord, or paying to your schools, or not paying to your schools, what we're talking about in legal terms is ultimately a contract. And the contract is, uh, in legal terms, a fairly, it's a basic and a fairly simple concept. And that is there's two parties, three parties and agreed to something. Uh, so on the one hand, one party, for example, in the case of a school agreed to provide services and then the parents um, on the other side of the contract agreed to pay for those services. Now, what's going on right now is that ultimately one or the other party is unable, or both in many cases, are unable to um, perform their side of the obligation. So that's really what we're talking about. And that applies to everyone, be it employee-employer relationship or landlord-tenant relationship or school and parent relationship. So what we're talking about is a contract and ultimately perhaps a breach of contract. Now, in this case, uh, in JP's case, uh, so what we're talking about is ultimately a school contract. Now, what's important to uh, underline, because surprisingly, Many people don't really think of these kind of relationships as contractual relationships because as a parent, you pay for the school. You don't necessarily think in legal terms, I went and I signed a contract and the, con the terms of the contracts are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, you don't really think that way. That though, it's important to understand that there is a contract. And so uh, on the one hand, and the contract can be more than one piece of document. So it could be there. Um, the admission form that you sign, it could be a, 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 perhaps a meteor, more detailed document that you sign afterwards. It could also be a number of representations or marketing materials that the, schools ha the school has uh, sent to you over the years. So all of these documents can in fact comprise terms and conditions of, of a contract, in other words, or an agreement of what the parties agreed to. Uh, so even though you don't necessarily, as a parent, you necessarily think, well, I didn't sign a contract. There is no contract. There is a contract. Now, why I um, spend so much time highlighting this is because this does set a legal framework in terms of what all parties who are going through these hard times, and us including, and I tell you as me as an employer and as, an, and as a practitioner and, and uh, one that represents clients, we're all going through this. So now you have a contract. So as a parent, you do have a contract. Now, now that you have this legal framework, what does it mean in the case of JP? Well, you obviously as a parent, you signed up uh, to, um, uh, to enroll your child into the school uh, on the representation the school provides certain kinds of services. Now, what are these services? And in, I'm a parent myself, in the simplest terms is that your child goes through physical school, you drop him or her off in the morning and you pick them up in the afternoon and, and during the time that they are at school, 
that they are being taken care of by their teachers. And in real terms, that means for the period that your child is in school, you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to spend your time uh, teaching them, opening up Zoom sessions for them, feeding them, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's in the simplest terms. Now, so that is, as a parent, that's, that, is your, that was your expectation of contract. Now, the school, when they give you the fees and, uh, and offered uh, the program, obviously, they were expecting to do the same. Well, in these unprecedented, unprecedented times, uh, the schools closed, not on their own accord, by, by the mandate of the government. Uh, so both parties find themselves in, themselves in a very challenging position, and that is you as a parent, you've paid your money, and many schools have not offered any discounts to adjust the quality uh, in an online platform um, as compared to the physical platform. Uh, so, but even if those schools, those schools that have offered some discounts, for a lot of parents, it's not good enough because parents consider that their side of the bargain, their side of the contract has uh, that they haven't shortchanged, that they've enrolled their children for a particular experience and now they're not getting that experience. Well, the school is also in a challenging position and that is it's, um, it's not able to operate business as usual, not because of its own choice, but because of the government mandate and obviously the global pandemic. So now you have these, um, these sort of challenging times and uh, the schools are trying to do their best, trying to deliver some kind of content that would be more or less uh, transferable to the online platform and the parents are managing their best to try to keep up. But obviously with that, this is a complete, completely new reality, completely new um, experience and it brings a lot of challenges for parents. And so JP's comment is very relevant and that is, well, shouldn't I expect some sort of, uh, some kind of a, not a discount, but and I demand even the fees back, which a lot of parents have uh, understandably uh, wanted and demanded from the schools. Now, what what is the appropriate school's response? I mean, you see, in legal terms, there is they have an excuse, and and the term I'm sure many have heard by now is called the um, force majeure, and that is uh, the term that all parties across the board are now starting to assert. And then, in, in simple terms, that means an excuse, a legitimate excuse for parties to either uh, to delay their performance of their obligations or to cancel the contract altogether without a penalty. So in this case, the school would rely on force majeure is they've closed the school not on their own accord. And therefore, they don't have to give you money back. Uh, and so there is there's some something to that. Uh, and uh, uh, But you know, obviously, there's a legitimate expectation from the parent in terms of whether they should at least, in the very least, re request or expect some kind of a discount. And this is more, honestly, it's more of a subjective issue. And ultimately, if there are many disputes related to this, and we expect that there will be, uh, it will be up to the judge to decide whether this particular event of force majeure, of this event is a force majeure. And if so, uh, to what extent does it allow, give parties the right to alter their uh, performance of their obligation? So you see, what's also important to highlight is the force majeure is not a carte blanche for one party or the other not to perform. It's just a legitimate excuse for them to either delay performance uh, or to cancel the contract altogether and reinstate parties in original condition. So it's not to say that a school can just keep the money and not offer anything, but at the same time, if we're talking about the discount and the proportion of discount, uh, then it will really be as it's more of a subjective issue it's for the courts to decide what should be a proportional discount the school should give to the parties uh, to adjust uh, the um, uh, the ultimate uh, end result that the parents receive uh, versus what they expected that's that was with regards to payments but uh, and, and and perhaps discount but with regards to gps the second part of gps uh, question and that's about um, schools refusing to provide certificates. Uh, honestly, I think that's that's wrong, and that should not be allowed. Uh, and um, uh, if, if and then that we have heard comments, and I think that's what JP also said, um, is that uh, uh, they refuse to provide certificates that either the child has uh, has ended this particular year, or in some we've even heard reports that schools uh, will not issue these reports for the previous year until their children enroll in the next year. Uh, well, that's just that's just wrong, and that should definitely not uh, be allowed to happen. And we do hope that uh, these are just uh, threats for now, and that if uh, these practices uh, are actually um, start to happen, that the government will intervene 
and we clarify that there is no legal basis uh, for the school to do so and certainly even a practical reason for schools to do that because this will obviously lead a lot of people to leave Dubai and that's not in anyone's interest. And we've seen lots of schools uh, take the lead in this by being more proactive, offering a discount. I've heard of a number of schools. My wife is a teacher. Uh, schools who've cut salaries have, have taken all kinds of measures to try to be fair. It is a give and take situation. Let me just head back to corporate liabilities, responsibilities, if you like, for a moment. And there is a question here. How can you enforce payment of end of service benefits lots of people unfortunately at the moment have lost their jobs or uh, have been subject to uh, salary cuts for example but how do you enforce payment of end of service benefits if a company can't pay up front and for lots of companies at the moment cash flow is tricky let's put it that way what if a company can only pay on a schedule but because you've lost your job you are going to have to leave the country and go home what happens in that instance well, it's um, it's more a practical uh, question or I guess advice that I would give, and that is, right, but obviously there's a, a legal uh, ramification to it too, or a legal basis, and that is just because you're not in the country to receive your payment does not mean that in practical terms uh, there is no way for you to receive that payment, as we all know, but also in legal terms, and that's what we mean that you're walking away from your entitlement because by virtue of leaving the country. Now, but I'm sure the, the listener's question is more to okay, how do you enforce that? Uh, so let me start with just the, uh, the, the question, the, part, the first part of the question, and that is referring to um, just the, uh, receiving end of service payment, the payment in terms of installments or informal installments versus a lump, uh, one lump sum payment. And as we know, the general practice is, and when you are terminated, then you are due, you're entitled to your end of service entitlements, and those are normally paid as a one lump, uh, lump sum payment. Uh, and, um, and, and so with those kind of cases, uh, that's sort of what we all expected, expected to receive. Uh, and uh, the, just the question here is about um, uh, the company not able to pay that, and that's just the reality of today's world. And my advice as a business person is just that employees and, um, and ultimately all parties together uh, where can kind of share the burden and, um, and sympathize with one another's position, uh, wherever it's merited, obviously. But in this particular case, you can see how companies will struggle to pay or come up with this lump, uh, lump sum payment as part of the end of service. So, I mean, you as, a, as an employee, you have two choices. You either accept the term, the installment plan that they give you, or you go to court, I mean, ultimately. So going to court is not feasible, and I would not recommend it, particularly in these kinds of cases where you know the company wants to pay you, it's just a matter of how quickly it can pay you that amount. Uh, because going to court is still, there'll still be inconveniences, and there are for additional expenses in you being outside the country, litigating your case inside the country, uh, in, inside the UAE. Uh, so one, two, you'll have to spend money on legal fees and court fees translated and so on and so forth. And three, still, there's still a factor of time. You're still not being paid that amount. So I would say from a business and, and a practical standpoint, it is in the interest of, uh, it's in the interest of employees to ultimately accept uh, the, the payment plan uh, and, um, and work with the company to ensure that the company can uh, survive and that you as well as an employee at least could get some money up front. Now, the, the question obviously then comes, uh, uh, well, how do I ensure that that particular payment plan will be honored? And that's more a matter of contract, a matter of contract, a matter of practice. I mean, and there are different ways of doing it. One, obviously, uh, there should be a clear document between the company and the employee that sets out, okay, this is, let's say, our obligation of paying, let's say, 100,000 dirhams, and then, but we can only pay these over the course of the next 12 months, and we'll make it into in equal installments, for example, directly into your bank account. It's something that's clear for both parties. And then, um, and, and then there are other ways of, I mean, that, that's one option, you just have that agreement, and if you know your company and you know that you can rely on them, then perhaps that, that's good enough. Uh, in other cases, you can also ask for, for checks, uh, for post-data checks from the company to secure those payments. And that gives you some additional liability because also you can use checks um, through, um, through the criminal route if they bounce. Um, so, I mean, these are some options and uh, perhaps 
The other option is for there's something in between, and that is, for example, you accept a lesser amount of your end of service, but in one lump sum. So let's say it's 70%, but you get it now and not have to worry about this or the remainder of it um, and managing it over the long term. Don't forget, if you have a question for Ludmilla, get in touch. We've got well over half an hour of this webinar, maybe even longer if we can stretch things ever so slightly. Now, Ludmilla, let me ask you this. In the UAE, one area of perpetual legal concern, even in the best of times, is that of who signs the checks. It's very much the case that check signatories are treated as liable for funds to be paid. Even if you're only a signatory, has there been any change? Has there there been any commentary on this situation against the backdrop of COVID-19? Not substantively. So what you're referring to, and this is a a comment or a question we often receive uh, from, um, uh, from employees of companies in particular who are signatories uh, mm. uh, for the company either by being on the license or being actually added as signatories to uh, to the bank account so when they sign checks then obviously their name is on the check but the check is not a personal check it's, it's actually an individual as a corporate check so the employee is not doing it their own individual capacity but rather on behalf of the company uh, so um, and um, historically a lot of employees sign these uh, checks with their eyes more or less closed because uh, they know it's not their own personal check. Uh, however, that's, that is a dangerous practice and it is a practice that will, and, and we're already seeing, uh, will surface in, um, in all sorts of uh, ways and causing complications for, for parties and we've seen this before after the financial crisis. Uh, and that is um, whenever a check bounces, uh, then the way it works in terms of the, the order, uh, the, the party who holds a check, and they, they go to the bank, the check bounces. Then with this bounce check, they can go to the police. Now the police will look, okay, who are the signatories on uh, on the check? And so, and unfortunately, it's the people that are listed on the check that, um, in terms of priority, in terms of contact, will be first be contacted by the authorities. Uh, and then sometimes if those people, for example, the signatories are not in the country, then the police will look at who is the manager in the license uh, officially, and they will uh, they will go down to that person. And at least in the past, those are the people who will ultimately, unless they were able to settle the check, would end up going to jail at least for a day or two until they were able they were being released on bail. Now, and this is important to highlight because while these people may think, well, this these are not our obligations. The, the legal framework for checks that exist in the UAE is that every check is a separate legal instrument. And it's separate from, for example, your employment, employment agreement with your company that perhaps might limit uh, your responsibility and would ultimately limit your responsibility as an employee uh, uh, to these kind of financial obligations. But the check, unfortunately, is treated as a separate, uh, separate matter. Uh, so your defense would always be, I didn't sign it on my own behalf, I signed it on behalf of the company, but the reality is such that as long as it has your name on it, you are the first uh, point of person who will be responsible for that. And uh, in the past, you know, you could, they, they, those people did end up actually um, having to go to jail uh, and unless they were able to either pay or somehow defend themselves uh, uh, by virtue of someone else uh, taking the blame. Uh, so, and that, that ultimately, that legal framework has not changed, but what has changed, a few other things have changed. One is that checks below 200,000 dirhams now no longer carry with them, for example, uh, jail time. So in the past, any, any check below 200,000 dirham, you would ultimately end up in the, in the police station and perhaps for a few days in, um, in jail until you're able to secure bail for yourself. Now, any check below 200,000 no longer have that, um, that penalty, which is very important. Uh, so um, so that's, that's one. Two, and in particular in the, in the context of COVID-19, is that the authorities have also made statements of these announcements that they, um, that they would like for the police to um, uh, perhaps delay processing these kinds of checks until further notice. So the hope here is that uh, if, if these checks are, not, are, are going to be presented to the police, the police for now will not respond to them until things settle a little bit. 
Now, this is not necessarily a legal uh, legal process, but more of a practical and a, and a temporary one. So therefore, the issue of liabilities will still remain. Uh, but in the meantime, at least in theory and uh, by the announcements that were um, that were shared in the media from various government officials, is that the intent is not to uh, uh, not, not to for the police not to action on these checks uh, at these times until further notice. I mean that that's a sensible, practical measure, isn't it? Because at a time like this, and this is something I wanted to ask you: just how much of a feeling do you have that there is? an effort to provide some breathing space, some give and take between being practical and accounting for COVID-19 and sticking to the letter of the law? Well, certainly the authorities, I mean, there is, you have several parties involved. You have the authorities and that being the government authorities, and then you have the private individuals and private businesses, and then you have all the people kind of on the other side. So from the perspective of the authorities, they have been trying to uh, mitigate uh, these difficult times by, for example, issuing these kind of mandates and issuing mandates to the police. To the, uh, for a while, there were some mandates even to the courts about to perhaps delaying hearings for certain kinds of cases, just in order to prioritize more important cases. Uh, and there have been mandates to the central bank, for example, uh, in encouraging banks or actually giving banks um, mandates to defer payments of, um, of mortgages, of, loan, uh, of loans, of, of uh, credit card payments and car payments, whatever other sort of financial obligations you might have to the banks. So there have been instructions given to the banks to basically to either defer those payments or, or give what they call the sort of the, the payment holidays for a, few, for a few months. There have been also mandates about a decrease in interest rates and various service uh, charges and penalties and such. Uh, so absolutely, there is from the government side, there are many initiatives and, uh, that have been announced to help mitigate this. Uh, now, the effects of these mitigations and whether they're enough, it just remains to be seen because we're still in the, in the thick of it. Uh, and that's from the government side. And even for a lot of some of the government authorities, um, for example, some of the free zones have given, gone even further and given to some of their companies discounts and licenses or at least uh, uh, allowed them, giving them grace period to renew their licenses and waive penalties and fees uh, for late submissions of licenses. And in some cases, free zones have also um, offered uh, those um, those of their members, who, for example, as their tenants or renting properties straight from the government, they've given them rent-free periods. Uh, they have given substantial discounts for for the new member companies and so on and so forth. So governments. And various government authorities have been giving uh, additional uh, mitigating uh, offerings to help their member companies to, to survive. From That's from the government standpoint. Then perhaps we'll see more of them and we hope we'll see more of them. But from the private standpoint, that is, for example, if you're a landlord, and if you're a landlord, then you have two or three offices that you're renting out uh, to, uh, to companies. Uh, and many questions we've received is whether whether there is still an obligation to pay for those landlords. So government have, has not made any mandates ordering private parties to, for example, not collect rent. So there is no such mandate. Uh, so therefore, legally speaking, you're still obligated to pay to your landlord. Uh, but um, uh, but the hope is that uh, I started this um, this discussion. The hope is that the landlords will be more sympathetic to their to their tenants and will either help them restructure their obligations or will provide them a discount or some kind of deferred payments and they'll ultimately work together to facilitate the management of their liability. And that really is the point, isn't it? It is best in a situation like this, whichever side you're on, whether you are a customer of a bank or you are the bank itself, proactivity, don't put your head in the sand talk, look for a solution, uh, and if you need help, ask for it. Well, for sure. And this is, um, again, these are very, very new circumstances for all of us. And people, in many ways, people are ashamed, and people are scared, and people feel uncomfortable. And uh, these are all very natural, very human feelings. But the reality is such, and there's now this very ubiquitous saying, is we're all, all in this together. So 
Um, this is, it is still much more preferred route uh, for everyone, including the people for who you want to perhaps um, ask for a discount or some kind of a deferral. It's better for everyone to know what is possible, what's not possible. And that is, for example, um, uh, in, in a tenant and landlord situation, for example, it's better that the tenant lets the landlord know early on that they're able or not able to pay and, and how their obligations might be affected. Uh, so that to allow both parties to negotiate something that's sensible uh, early on or or timely. Uh, and what happens often is that because you're afraid, because you're scared, because you feel uncomfortable, you just kind of stick your head in the sand, as you said, and you don't do anything, and then you just hope that, and we see this a lot, by the way, in this country, is that you somehow hope that the government will sort things out for you. But that's not realistic, nor is it sensible to expect. Um, so our advice is to always just approach each other, and and same uh, goes for by the salaries and uh, and their other obligations, and who are uh, forced to perhaps terminate employees. It's just better to communicate and put everybody on notice early on, and see what kind of sensible solutions they might be able to work out. So communication and notice are very important here, and this is not something that we should be afraid about. And um, I think that the sooner we start the dialogue and then the better it is and the more time parties will have to uh, to negotiate and figure out their alternative ways forward it's also a weight off that you initiate that uh, conversation as well i wanted to keep on the theme of money worries it's it's very much front of mind ludmilla at the moment credit cards for example they are a heavily marketed financial product uh, here often it's the case that people live uh, off their cards, revolving balances that can become increasingly less manageable as months progress. You can build up debt at an alarming rate. Um, what's the situation with regard to overdue balances right now with credit cards? What are you hearing? But also, what do you do if you find yourself unduly pressured to pay? What should you do? And the reason I ask that is because there's a question for you here, which relates to a personal loan of a large amount of money, 174,000 dirhams. This person has 67,000 dirhams outstanding on credit cards. They've just lost their job. They'll get an end of service amount of 60,000 dirhams. The person says, I'm trying to find a new job here. I'm not sure whether I'm going to get anything, obviously. Uh, but says, if I approach the bank to ask for a discount to close um, my account? Would they offer any discount? What, what happens there? And also, is there any percentage of discount possible? I don't know if that's even a question uh, that you can answer. But if your credit card debt's mounting, the answer is to go and talk to your bank and to look at perhaps a consolidation, I guess. Uh, well, yes. So again, say start with the dialogue with the bank. Uh, yeah. On the one hand, the mandates that have been um, that have been given by the government um, about uh, banks uh, deferring payments of um, at least on the monthly obligations, they're there. So we know that the banks at least have been instructed to be more careful and and perhaps not run to the police as they uh, might have done in the past, or they would have done in the past, you know, as readily as uh, as before. And then uh, to try to work out some sort of um, settlements with their with their customers. I mean, but these are what's important to highlight is that these are general mandates. There hasn't been, for example, an order uh, from uh, the government to the banks to, to for ordering the banks, for example, to forgive uh, their customers' debt. There has not been such an order. And therefore, as a customer, uh, uh, then it's really important to understand that legally you cannot refer to some kind of a, a new legislation or an emergency decree that allows you basically to waive your, to waive your debt. Uh, so uh, and uh, so that that has to be kind of the starting point. Uh, that being said, on the other side of, of of that spectrum, the banks are trying, or at least have been instructed to work with their customers to see what kind of um, settlements to work out. Now, where you find yourself on that spectrum is is a question of of time, and uh, perhaps uh, there will be some court cases in between that will help us settle um, that particular divide. Uh, but um, banks will just to manage everyone's expectations. Banks will do what they always do, and that is they will insist on the full payment of the obligation because, in their minds, 
basically you signed off on here, you signed over to you owe this kind of uh, this money in, on top of that, you've taken that money from the bank. That's how the bank looks at it. And therefore you are required to pay that back on the one hand. On the other hand, banks have their own obligations and because you are not alone in this, you almost so many other customers are also um, having trouble paying. So therefore the bank ultimately is receiving less money. So for them, they find it a lot more difficult now to offer any kind of discounts or settlements to anyone because in their minds, in their books, they're seeing that they're receiving uh, less money as well. And we know this because we have been talking to the banks throughout all, all of this. And even uh, with regards to, for example, requesting help from the bank of finance, in which once again, the government has issued some stimulus packages, one of which is to encourage banks to provide stimulus finance, financing to, in particular, SMEs. Uh, now, uh, from uh, many clients, and, and we have instructed with banks with regards to this particular issue, it's uh, also obvious that it's difficult for the banks to, to provide that kind of financing because they're seeing that they're not getting the usual revenue stream as they're used to in terms of their receiving monthly payments from their hundreds of thousands and not millions of customers. Uh, so they are, they find themselves, in their minds at least, between a, a hard place and a rock, a rock and a hard place, because they're not able to help you uh, sort of settle your, your payments or give you a discount because they're receiving less money. That's, a, that's more of a money-driven or financial perspective, but the pragmatic perspective for banks also is that, when we hope that they will come to it sooner than later, is that you cannot change the fact that if people don't have money, they don't have money. So. I would hope that more banks would come forward and accept lesser amounts a day and close their checks and kind of write it off their books um, than continue to pressure their customers uh, to pay timely. Uh, so that's more of a, a hopeful uh, comment. And that's also obviously uh, measures that have been in, historically have been done in, in other countries and successfully so. Uh, so therefore, there's lots of precedent for it, and, and ultimately, we hope that that's um, what will um, will take hold here. But in the meantime, and then one of the listeners also is asking questions about, well, you know, what, what do you do when they're calling you every single day, and then bothering you and, and becoming a nuisance and wanting you to make a payment? Uh, so I mean, that's very stressful, uh, and uh, unfortunately, for now, I mean, you could do one of two things. One, you could just, I, I, but again, that's apart from starting a conversation with the bank and trying to figure out a way to, to uh, restructure your obligations. But in the meantime, whenever these sort of calls come in, um, they be very assertive and say they're not, they're not welcome calls and they're becoming a nuisance and, um, and stop calling you. And if they continue, then you can, um, you can either just ignore calls altogether, but make sure to maintain communication in writing with the proper bank representatives on the one hand, and then, two, if it truly becomes a nuisance, you can even try to report it to the police because there is, um, uh, there is at least uh, a, a legal remedy for, um, for people to report nuisance. The nuisance can be a criminal offense. So if you are being bothered all the time, you can report it to the police. But again, manage your expectations because the police is inundated with uh, far more important things at this point of managing the whole precautionary measures. Uh, but basically, that, that, those, are your, those are your options. Keep dialogue going with the bank, try to restructure the obligations, but document everything. It's really important to document everything in writing uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, um, yeah, you just ask them to stop calling you and, or, or stop answering the calls. So that is too a challenge because many people receive calls from very many different numbers. Uh, but at the end, that's, you know, you just make sure that you have a formal line of communication with the bank. When it comes, Ludmilla, to personal and I guess to corporate liabilities as well, rent is often the big one. It's, it's very tough just now for so many uh, of us. And in so many cases, checks to cover rent, perhaps up to a year, will have been issued. Uh, EN writes in um, saying, I've been terminated. I want to pay my rent monthly. I want to make a case to RERA for exiting early without paying penalty. Unfortunately, my building owner, apartment owner, doesn't want to help and reduce the rent, which is higher uh, than the market. The next due check is the 10th of June, quarterly rent. I can't pay it. I want to pay month by month. 
until Rera take a decision. So is there an option to obtain the account of the company over, owner to perhaps force a case like this in this instance? Well, um, there are different options. So um, from there's the legal side of things again, and there's the practical. Uh, in yeah. legal terms, and I'll come back to this uh, shortly, it's uh, you can file a case ultimately unless the landlord agrees with you and offers you some sort of an amicable solution. Then your only other option would be to go to court. Now, what you can argue in court, I'll come back to shortly. But in the meantime, and this is why it's for a lot of tenants, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important issue. Because in the meantime, for uh, for tenants, the problem is that the check, as you said, the, the landlord already has the check, and they are cashing the check. And even if the check hasn't come due yet, uh, you want them, you, and you ask them to restructure it or help you kind of manage or get a discount, and but the landlord won't give you the check back, even if you put it on hold or on record that you don't want them to. And I know because we had earlier a question exactly about that from one of the other listeners, and that is, you know, can I stop the check? Uh, if I don't want them to cash it. In short, you cannot. It's not possible in the in in the, the legal system right now. It's not possible to stop the check. So therefore, once they've issued the, che- the check to the other party, they have the right uh, to cash it irrespective of your notifications or pleas or, so, or what, what have you. Uh, so as a result, uh, that's basically you have to you have to manage expectations in practical terms. That money may already be lost. Now, what you can do in return is, for example, just make sure, again, our advice is always uh, very much focused on communication and documentation. And that is be very vigilant about documenting your communication, for example, with whoever it is the party is that you are trying to restructure your obligations with. So in this particular case, in EM's case, uh, uh, it's with the landlord. So just document, uh, number one, that you have lost a job perhaps due to COVID-19. Because remember, the idea of COVID-19 or the whole coronavirus is not to just use that card indiscriminately and, and just to try to get out of your obligations. Really, if you want to stand a chance for this to, to be used as a valid reason or excuse uh, to alter your obligations, then it has to be related to COVID-19, directly or indirectly, but reasonably so. Uh, so if you have lost a job because of this, uh, for example, if you're in the hospitality business, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, reasonable to expect that you would have been terminated because of COVID-19. And so therefore, just document that to the landlord. So this is, therefore, I cannot pay uh, the current amount. Please work with me uh, or in the very least, uh, give me a discount. Or, for example, let me stay in the property longer for X number of weeks or months or so to compensate, for example, for the difference in, in the rent. And that is, let's say you paid 100,000 dirhams last year and your rent ends normally in June. You can say, listen, the rent today is 70,000. So why don't you let me stay for three more months? Uh, and so that way I won't be in default. You still have a tenant in here and we can perhaps give have an opportunity to re- restructure and continue our relationship in the future. Uh, so but make sure to document this. Now, if the landlord refuses to do all that, ultimately your only recourse is to take it to court and to RDC in particular and to argue that point before the judge at RDC. And I would say today, and this is all still kind of early in the process, but given how, for example, the, these kinds of pandemics have been treated in the past, in particular in China, is that they have been held to be a, 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 a defensible or a excuse of um, force majeure. And that is that you can use this as, as, as an example of this was a forced measure and I could not put up with my obligations because of it. Uh, so but remember, this is where the documentation will be very important. And so once you've done that, then there is a, a good chance that the judge will look at it as, a, as a, an event of forced measure and therefore help uh, restructure your obligation in light of them. But you just need to make sure you have documentation that there is actual the actual uh, forced measure and that what you're asking for is reasonable. So it's, is it reasonable for you to ask to stay in the property for another year? Yeah, perhaps not. Or to have your rent discounted by 90%, perhaps not. But so strike something reasonable and, or, and, and then therefore the chances of the court upholding that are much higher. Here's another question for you, Ludmilla, slightly more pressing, uh, if that's even possible, in terms of time frame. This person says, my next check to my landlord is due in four days time, the 24th of May. 
I want to vacate on the 22nd. I'm planning to leave, planning to go home. As per our agreement, I'm supposed to pay a month's penalty. I'm willing to pay that in cash or with a separate check. My landlord's not in the mood to return my checks, is delaying so that he can cash my check on the 24th of May. Based on past behavior, I think it's unlikely he'll return my money. So what are this person's options to ensure that he returns the checks and doesn't encash that check on the 24th? Well, again, this is really important. It's a, it's a great question because it applies to so, so, so many people, and I will be straightforward and honest. There's nothing you can do about that. So it truly is now metaphysical, literally and metaphorically is in your landlord's hands. So he has your check as long as you check. He has legal right to cash it. Uh, so you just need to know that, and therefore, and, and this is unfortunately why so many landlords uh, take such a hard stance in terms of um, their unwillingness to negotiate because they know they have the upper hand. They know they have the, the trump card. And it's unfortunate because if, you know, if the person doesn't have money, it, just, it doesn't change anything. It, they're not going to somehow come up with money. Uh, what I think a lot of landlords and other parties who hold checks expect or is that in fact the person does have money, they just don't necessarily want to spend it on this commitment. And it's just because of that that they continue to apply that pressure because they hope that they'll be one of their early creditors in line uh, who will get their commitments on it. Uh, so, but in practical terms, in the meantime, there's nothing you can do. You cannot just, um, you cannot just uh, recall the check or cancel the check. And you cannot physically, unless the landlord gives you this check, you cannot demand it back. And you can demand it, but you cannot expect it back. You cannot get it back. So that's in, in, in practical terms. Now, in legal terms, uh, if, if, um, if you are exiting the apartment, so you're saying, listen, I've left six months before, uh, before the lease, therefore I haven't actually had the benefit of that property for the next six months. So what you can do is, that under these kind of circumstances, again, and this is the preface here, is that you are being affected directly by COVID-19, and therefore you're forced to leave the property because of it. Uh, so what you can do is what you just move out and then you and you vacate the property. Therefore, you you've made it available for the landlord, at least in theory, to rent out to someone else. But in the meantime, you're not taking the benefit of the property anymore. So again, make sure the document is very clearly. But what you could do then, if you just move out and say, "Okay, I've handed over the property. Please do not cash this check." Now, chances that landlord will have cashed will cash the check. But then you can have a civil claim against the landlord for that amount of money, because ultimately that money was paid to the landlord for the purposes of you using or enjoying that property. If you can later show, I haven't enjoyed the property because I wasn't able to, I could not afford it, therefore you can have a valid legal claim uh, for the refund of that money. Uh, but this will necessitate a court case, and obviously time and spending money on on, on managing the court case, though you could manage it yourself. Uh, so, um, and it will take some time. But basically, in, in practical terms, those are the only things you can do here. And that's why I always start and continue to reiterate that it truly is in the best, in the interest of, of everyone to work together. Because in the meantime, the landlord, especially if there's no money in the account, the landlord will not have money. Uh, the check will have a bounce. Yes, he may bring a criminal case, he may bring an RDC case, and so on and so forth, but um, it doesn't really suit anyone's interest because at the end, you, don't, you know the person doesn't have money. And you know also from a legal perspective, the person, the tenant, may have an argument against the landlord for the refund of the remainder or uh, for any kind of damages they might have um, re incurred as a result of landlord's perhaps malicious action. Uh, so that's, um, I mean, that's, um, that's kind of the reality of where we are. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, there have been mandates, uh, again, government mandates, asking or giving instructions to the various courts uh, to pause eviction. So, or at least enforcement of eviction. At least in the meantime, we know that uh, the police and other authorities are not actioning off in terms of evicting people from their properties. But that's not to say that the judgments for evictions are not being issued in the meantime or that they may be issued in the future. We've got seven, eight minutes left. Let's try and answer a couple of questions, a couple more questions, Ludmilla. This is from RC. Most companies and businesses are allowing at least 30% of workers back to work. 
Here's the question. What happens if the companies aren't capable of providing the necessary PPE, personal protective equipment, to their employees, their workers? Are they liable if workers get sick going back to work? Uh, for sure, but that would be uh, irrespective of the, I guess, the, the, the health issues that uh, a person, an employee might incur uh, as a result of their working, whether it's the COVID-19 or whether it's some other uh, unsafe or unhealthy uh, conditions that exist in the workplace, it may affect employees negatively. That responsibility remains. The companies, by law, uh, are required to provide the employees with conditions uh, that ensure their health and safety. Uh, and so in particular with uh, regards to COVID-19, there have been and they continue to be uh, fairly detailed instructions about the various precautionary measures that employers are required to provide to their employees before they send them back to work. Um, so obviously anything like this, if, if let's say somebody in particular, if somebody gets sick uh, because in particular with coronavirus, because the employee here to their employees, uh, this will result in serious liabilities for the company. Uh, and uh, there have been uh, numerous lists of various fines, including fines for, for companies that they would face in cases like this if they are not um, providing employees with uh, sufficient, um, uh, sufficient precautionary measures. And on top of that, so there'll be a fine, but obviously there'll be the hospital bills, because right now the government has said that they will uh, especially those who don't have insurance, so they will cover the uh, uh, any kind of treatment uh, cost. But obviously, in, in a case like this, that the company would have to carry the uh, the treatment cost in addition to the fine. So there's a, a very strong case against the company here, and I just hope that this more is more a hypothetical question. The companies are not actually uh, doing this today because it just would be largely unwise. Final question. Uh, I think we're going to just have time for this. This is from NA. And we're back to credit cards again. And there are three main parts to this question. Uh, here's the background. I've made uh, the payment default. I guess that's the minimum payment on my credit card for the last five months. Currently, I am employed, but I have other... Uh, priority commitments back in my home country. So I can't pay uh, the minimum amount here. My credit limit was 30,000 dirhams. The outstanding amount is 40,000 dirhams. My bank's calling me nearly every day. First question, the consequences if I continue not to pay. Second question, if I pay the fine, is there anything else I'll have to worry about or will it be over? Um, and the third question, ultimately, will the bank move forward with a criminal or a civil case? And if so, what are the possible consequences there? It, it certainly is a loaded question. And so with regards to um, uh, the what will the consequences be if, if you continue not to pay? Well, uh, at the end, so with the credit card in particular, there is, again, two sides to the equation. One is you have uh, the... the actual financial obligation that you owe to the company that, that in this case your outstanding amount is forty thousand and so you owe that to, to the bank in terms of money. But on the other hand, most credit cards in the UAS security are what's called again a post data check. So for the bank ultimately has these two types of guarantees if you will. One is uh, the, the the obvious evidence that you have taken forty thousand dirham to borrow forty thousand dirham from them. And on the other hand, um, they have the check. Uh, to um, that they can act on if you don't. Uh, so, but what will happen in the in the meantime? So obviously you you will have, have no more facility uh, credit card facility uh, to use. Um, sometimes depending on what the rest of your banking arrangement is, if you're banking with the same bank, sometimes they will close your account, or freeze your account, your other accounts, perhaps not the credit card, but your other accounts because of this. Um, so banks have been known to do this. Uh, sometimes, for example, as well, if you have, um, uh, sometimes they can even reach into your uh, into your checking account and take money from there uh, towards paying your bank, your credit cards. We also have seen that, uh, and um, uh, and and so there's you know, there's a number of and sometimes what they can do as well is, for example, and this is quite common with a lot of employees here, is that uh, whenever your end of service comes in, and usually with a lot of people. We can imagine there'll be more of these kinds of cases now where a lump sum comes into an account that's called the end of service, and that's sort of the customary way of, of depositing for company to deposit money. It says end of service. In most cases, banks, what they take they do is that they uh, reach into that 
o'clock at the end of service, and they can use that amount to pay uh, to whatever debt that you um, have with them. Um, so that that's what they can do sort of in in, um, in practical terms in the meantime. Uh, also, in the long run, they can report you to the central bank, and then you that this will obviously affect your credit history. And now there is a credit bureau in the UAE, so these kinds of um, records are now kept centrally, and uh, and therefore ultimately we have heard enough reports are being used against customers whenever they apply, for example, for another banking uh, bank account somewhere else. Uh, so that's on the one side. On the other side, in terms of um, uh, in terms of the check, that check remains, and that's very important to uh, highlight is that. Uh, uh, the um, uh, the bank remit continues to keep in most cases uh, that that the physical check, and that physical check in most cases, in fact, is often is blank, or it is for some other amount. So, for example, to use the the listener's question, their line of credit is thirty thousand, but often the banks will say, "If we give you thirty thousand, but you give us a check for fifty thousand." So you have an amount right now, but it's not dated. But the bank now has that amount, that check, and it can go and cash it. Uh, so if, if you bounce that, then that becomes a criminal uh, offense. So you don't go to jail because it's below 200,000, but it's still a criminal offense. And therefore, um, they, you can have a criminal record on your account uh, for that. And then the fact that you uh, they shouldn't have cashed that check because you lost your job, so it becomes like a separate legal matter if you have to argue in court. That's why it's really important that you document your history with the bank and you explain to them that you have been laid off, for example, because of COVID-19 and you don't have money right now to pay off. And so therefore you're asking them to help you restructure your obligations or perhaps write off um, the loan. Now, what's important to highlight now and then you'll mindful at the time is that the UAE recently did introduce a personal bankruptcy um, law. So it, it may be that as time goes on, we'll see more personal bank bankruptcy cases filed. Now, this is a topic for another day, and perhaps as time goes on, there'll be more um, that discussion will be more relevant to so the specific details of it. But if you do, for example, file for personal bankruptcy, or it's called insolvency, then at least as per the law, these obligations become no longer criminal; they're sort of civil, and then the bank, uh, the courts work with you and whoever the third party is, the parties. To help restructure the obligations in line of uh, of what you actually are able to pay. So, personal bankruptcy is not a law that has or an insolvency that has been practiced very much, but it is certainly in the books now. And we expect in cases like uh, as Felicity just mentioned, there may be many more cases like that. In the past, it was criminal to file for bankruptcy. Well, now it is not. So it may be that in the case of that listener, that will be for many of us, that'll be the only option to file bankruptcy at least so that we don't have a criminal record in our account. And it's probably better to have bankruptcy record than criminal record. Um, so I expect that we'll see many more cases um, uh, invoking the insolvency of law. Considering the number of questions in today, Ludmilla, we're going to have to do this again. That's all the time we have for this special webinar edition of Logical with LY Law and LegalAdviceME.com. Uh, any questions you'd like answered personally, you can always find Ludmilla and the team, info at LYLawyers.com. Ludmilla Yamalava is the managing partner of Yamalava and Plethka based here in JLT. Really good to chat to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Tim, very much for moderating, and thank you for um, all the listeners tuning in and sending your questions. And as Tim said, the idea of why we introduced this webinar is because uh, we um, we are quite active participants on Legal Advice and Me in particular, and we received so many questions uh, on a daily basis uh, related to uh, managing responsibilities and liabilities, in particular in the time of COVID-19. So that's why we thought we would offer this resource to uh, to those um, uh, members of, of that community and the broader community, and I see some great response and participation. So we hope this has been of value, and um, um, feel free to reach out to us and send us more questions, and uh, we'll be happy to host more of these events, more of these seminars, because I know this is an issue that's on many of our minds, and, and there are not that many resources right now that are available to um, uh, to answer questions directly, and in particular, this is why we didn't script this um, uh, this this webinar, but we wanted to keep this uh, open forum for listeners to send in their questions, and uh, uh, we'll do more of these um, based on 
the number of questions will come in. It seems that there will another webinar is uh, will be much needed. But in the meantime, thanks everyone for tuning in, and uh, we hope this has been a value. And good luck to you, and stay strong and healthy. We'll set the date for that. A quick reminder, each week we produce our logical podcast covering all manner of legal issues pertinent here in the UAE and beyond. You can find Logical with Ludmilla and myself, Tim Elliott, wherever you usually find your podcasts. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for watching, thanks for listening, and thanks for getting involved.